Hello and welcome to the Restorative Parenting Podcast from The Mint House. Um, the Mint House, if you're not familiar with uh, who we are, we are a centre for restorative practice based in Oxford in England and we promote restorative approaches, restorative justice, restorative practice um, in a variety of ways. Um, we run events, we do training, um, we try to network with others across the UK and the world. Um, among many other things. And we're particularly interested in how we can um, really embed um, and use restorative approaches in a variety of contexts. So that's what perspective we're coming from. Um, and this is the Restorative Parenting Podcast where we, uh, we explore restorative justice and approaches in family life. Um, if you haven't listened to one of the previous episodes, obviously please do go back and listen to those. Um, but if you're just coming to this one for the first time, um, we're not parenting experts, um, we don't claim to have all the answers, but we're here to just have a conversation, share some of the highs and lows of parenting and how to do that in a restorative way, how we're trying to incorporate restorative approaches into our own family life, into our own parenting. Um, so it's great to have you joining us if you're listening today. Um, as with the previous episodes, we have three amazing guests with us here today, and I will let them each introduce themselves in a moment, um, so I won't repeat anything. Um, but today's theme is working through sibling conflict and rivalry. So how to deal with fighting and arguing in a restorative way, how to help, how to help kids, um, particularly siblings, develop their own conflict resolution skills. And this is a topic that I'm personally very interested <laughs> to hopefully learn more about. So no pressure to the three of you who are here to join me today, but I'm really interested to hear from other parents how they approach this, because this is definitely something that I find tricky at times. So I'm looking forward to this discussion, hopefully going to glean some words of wisdom um, from you. So um, I will let our three guests introduce themselves. And we have Justine Andrea Darling, Christina Parker-Shandle and Lindsay Pointer with us today. So, um, Justine, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you. So I'm Justine Andreo Darling, and I work at the Center for Restorative Justice at the University of San Diego, and I specifically coordinate the Certificate in Restorative Justice Facilitation and Leadership. And I have two kids. My son, Diego, will be two in April, and my daughter, Indy, will be five in April. And I'll pass it over to Lindsay. Thanks, Justine. Uh, my name is Lindsay Pointer, and I'm on the faculty at Vermont Law and Graduate School, and then I'm principal investigator of a grant-funded initiative, the National Center on Restorative Justice, which is a collaboration with the um, Bureau of Justice Assistance and is focused on restorative justice in criminal legal contexts. And I have two kids. I have Fern, um, who is three and three quarters, as she'll tell you. She'll be four in June. And Charlie, who just turned two. I'll pass to Christina. Thanks, Lindsay. Um, I'm Christina Parker Shandell, and I'm an associate professor at Renaissance University College uh, at the University of Waterloo. Um, and I have two kids as well, Jay's, who is going to be seven in uh, this year, and then Lexa, who's almost five. I'll pass it to you, Joy. Yes, and I'm Joy Bettles. I didn't say that before. Um, I'm the Communications and Development Officer at the Mint House, and I have two boys, um, one who is five and a half and one who just turned three. 
and I have another one on the way. So that'll be exciting later this year to welcome a new, new little one into the family. So our check-in question today is, do your children argue or fight? <laughs> Maybe an easy answer there. Um, but if so, what is it usually about? So Justine. Yes, the answer is yes, all the time. Um, and it's usually about sharing, uh, sharing toys and that sort of thing. And I've noticed it's also about like control of different types. So who's in charge of making decisions about play and also control about personal space. So like one wants to hug or wrestle and the other doesn't. And I think the added challenge is that my five-year-old Indy is, of course, developmentally more advanced than the two-year-old. So a lot of the responsibility falls on her um, in the fight. So I'll definitely uh, talk more about that in a little bit. I'll pass it to Lindsay. Yes, the answer for me is yes as well. I was thinking about our conversation today and was thinking, you know, um, I don't know if any of the restorative methods that we're going to talk about today have like a positive effect on the recidivism or reinvents, right? Like it seems like the arguments, the fights just keep coming um, even when they're resolved in a positive way, but maybe that's not what it's about. Like they're just learning, right? Um, so uh, yes, they fight sharing, they fight over sharing things, really the same things, Justine, that you just mentioned, sharing things like differences in the direction or the vision for how they're playing together. Like yesterday it was, is this giant cardboard box a boat or a bed? Um, and uh, definitely um, the personal space thing is huge. Um, they both are snugglers. They like to touch and hug, um, but sometimes the personal space thing can be a source of conflict. Pass to Christina. Yeah, I really resonate with, um, with what you both said, especially Justine, when you spoke about power and um, the older child sort of having to sometimes bear the responsibility of knowing how to better resolve the conflict and potentially the pressure that puts on them. But of course, for me too, my kids do fight. Um, but yeah, and it can sometimes be something as simple as uh, fighting over a water bottle or um, whose seat is whose, um, you know, but I feel like it's always different. But in any given moment, I feel like the conflict really depends on how they're feeling. Like, um, it just feels like sometimes, uh, you know, someone might get into their chair and they might do nothing because they might be feeling okay. And other times it might really aggravate them. And, and I feel like it's, it comes back to that point of how regulated they are in the moment, how deeply connected they feel. Because I feel even for myself, like if I stump my toe um, and I'm having a really great day, I might be able to recover from that really quickly. But, um, you know, if, if, I, my, if I was walking down the street, my partner was holding my hand and um, my kids were in a good place and I stumped my toe. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I'm, I might feel okay. But if, if I'm having a really bad day and I'm recovering maybe from something traumatic or something comes up, I might actually, you know, break down and cry in that moment. And it might actually be really aggravated. I might be aggravated about it. So um, I guess uh, when I'm thinking about the conflict, it's sometimes just the tip of the iceberg of how one would react depending on how they're feeling in that particular moment. Right. Yeah. 
Joy. Yeah, I definitely resonate with that. And I think that's a really good point as well that, um, yeah, emotional state, like physiological state can just have such an effect. We definitely had to cut a park trip shorter than probably we otherwise would have stayed earlier today because I could just tell that one of my kids was just reaching their emotional limit, just feeling tired, just was not going to be able to keep <laughs> emotions and behavior kind of regulated. Um, and yes, same here as well, you know, sharing is a huge one. I would say most of the conflicts in our house between the children come from sharing and um, personal space as well, big one as well. And my kids are very tactile with each other. They're very like physically aggressive with each other sometimes in a really like loving, like wrestling type way, sometimes not in an affectionate way. Um, yeah, so that can cause conflict and yeah I think also like others have said as well you know when there's an older child and a younger child I think sometimes my younger son will kind of go and try to touch something that my older son has made with like lego or, or something similar and he's like no don't touch it you're gonna break it and to be honest the younger one's likely to break it so it's not an unfounded concern but that could also cause some issues it's not necessarily in that moment necessarily I would say so much a sharing issue because he's not necessarily expected to share that thing but it's like a protection like don't ruin my stuff <laughs> um moment so that is also I think a hot topic <laughs> for us um so now that we have established that we all deal with conflict in our families and our children deal with conflict in their relationships with each other um we all have varying professional experience as people shared at the beginning in the introductions about um, restorative justice, restorative practice. Um, what can you take from your professional experience in restorative justice that you think might be able to help us think through this specific setting of young siblings? Are there any sort of practices or just ideas or activities or sort of, I don't know, kind of theories or models that you follow that maybe work with you know teenagers or college age you know, university age young adults um, or or adults um, that you think could be applied to this setting um justine yeah thank you joy uh this is such a good question that i've been asking myself ever since i became a parent and it's been <laughs> super challenging and what it, my main realization has been you know like in the restorative work that I do I have a lot of prep time for it and then I have time to recover after so I'm able to like bring my best most restorative self to holding space for others and using and pulling out all my RJ tools um and the difference I found with having my own children is there's not a lot of break time and there's not a lot of prep time and there's not a lot of like, um, you know, decompress after time because it's just all there all the time and it's very intense. So um, the first restorative tool that I've used a lot is giving myself a lot of grace and compassion and the biggest tool has been like pauses and breaks and trying to teach my kids about pauses and breaks. So 
um, so that we can do some more of the restorative work. Because we can't do that if we're, we don't have our wits about us or we're not rested or we're not feeling up to it. Um, so, so that's like my caveat to all of this. And because parenting is like 24 seven, all of the time, you know, I've found that it's hard to use restorative tools in every moment. And, and that's where the like grace and compassion for myself and my kids comes into play. Um, but once we've taken a break or had a pause, um, I, and and we're in a place to have a conversation. Uh, we use the basic restorative questions a lot. Like you know, they're they're pretty simple and and can be used with kids. And I found my children to really appreciate them. Like you know, once they've had a fight and we can process it, what happened? What what were you feeling or experiencing? Um, and what was the impact and, and how can we make it as right as possible? So we also talk a lot about personal responsibility and what we can control and what we can't. So, um, like, especially for my daughter who can take in a little bit more of this, you know, we can control our own actions, but not the actions of others. Um, so kind of, um, allowing space to differentiate those two things. So, for example, we have this Kiwi Co art box. I don't know if any of you have heard of this before, but it's it's like this art box that's delivered every month. It was a present from grandma. And the first couple of boxes were really a struggle to share um, because there's only one, you know, and in the moment it's hard to reason. So we had to take a pause on the art box and come back to it with more preparation. And that's what I always come to. Like when we're in the midst of a fight, I'm like, oh yes, we could have prepared better for this moment. So now that we're here and we didn't, like we need to take a pause and kind of like press the restart button. <laughs> um, so, but it's hard because life with kids is fast paced and, you know, sometimes I forget to do the the pre-work that it takes to um, lead up to like a, a perfect restorative justice moment. Um, so when things are getting hot in the conflict, we have to take a pause so I can think through a better approach. And so the kids can also calm down. And um, pauses were really hard at first, you know, uh, like, so the outbursts were, were really big and long because they didn't want to take a pause on sharing or, you know, um, whatever the case might be. So with this art box, um, and, and I found that the pause kind of escalated things at first as we were learning about the pause. Um, but what I would do is just like sit quietly with them. So I wasn't trying to fix it, but just like allow them to move through the tantrum or the big emotions. Um, and then I've noticed with practice, they kind of know what the pause is so they can move through those emotions a little bit easier. Um, and, and so now I know with the art box, when it comes, I need to prepare indie before. So I say like, the art box has arrived. 
And we know this is an important time to share with Diego. So when we open the box, your first job as the leader of the box is to find a way for Diego to be involved because we never know what's coming in it, right? It's like a surprise for all of us. So then once he's busy and we've got him going, you can work on the tougher, like big girl pieces of the project. And if it gets too challenging, we'll take a pause and come back to the art box when we're all feeling up to it. So she kind of knows exactly what's going to happen ahead of time. And I found that that really helps. Pass it over to Lindsay. <clears throat> I love that. I am. Um... I first just want to say I so resonate with what you were sharing at the beginning, Justine, of just like, yeah, if I'm facilitating a post-harm conversation in my professional life, I'm scheduling 30 minutes ahead of time to meditate and making sure I had lunch and am like well-rested and not, um, you know, like I shared in our check-in before we started the recording on a night of very little sleep and also trying to cook dinner, you know, like it's just it's tricky and it's so constant and it's so 24 seven, it's hard to be um, on your game. Um, uh, and I think that relates to the piece that I know is important, but forget the most often, it, which is that pause component that you're talking about, Justine, and just giving time for the, like, um, the intensity of emotions to be expressed and um, to, for, you know, both of the kids and for me to land in a space where we can have the conversation. Um, and um, I forget that all the time and it's so essential. And I don't know what like sticky note tattoo system I need to help me remember that, but I think I'm battling against this um, like sense of urgency that I feel of like, I want this, I want to reach a resolution. I want this to be okay. I want peace. I want, um, and I kind of forget that like, oh, in order for us to get there, we need time for like these feelings to be expressed, for there to be some cooling before we can really engage. Um, and then also, you know, and we're, we're talking about sibling conflict today, but when there's conflict between my kids and their friends, there's that kind of pressure you can feel when there's other adults in the space too of like I need to show that I'm addressing this right away um and we don't have right like you know common understanding or ways of talking about what some time what purpose time could be serving in like really truly taking something seriously so I forget that all the time but I know from experience exactly how essential it is and would love to find a way to um get better at creating that pause. Um, but then, yeah, we, we really lean into the restorative questions as well. I've found um, little tweaks that seem to help my kids. Like um, sometimes I'll ask, like after talking about what happened, great, you know, nice open first question, lovely restorative question. Um, sometimes when we're getting into the impacts or feelings, I'll ask, you know, either them you know, to share how they were, how they felt both in their heart and their body or like, um, and that's been helpful because it prompts them to talk about both the emotion that they felt and like if there was a physical injury as well. Um, cause sometimes there's like a push or a hit or something that has, you know, 
part of when this has really been brought to a boiling point. Um, and so that's been helpful to just like, you know, there's obviously many more layers of harm than that, but to start to like have them talk about that idea of there being multiple layers of impact and like forms of impact. And then, yeah, we talk about like what, yeah, what do you think would make your brother feel better now? Or Charlie, what do you need? Fern, what do you need? Um, and one thing that's been helpful there is, you know, we have like as humans, all of these symbolic reparation tools, like an apology, which seems to help, but you know, what is it really? Um, so that's one, um, but apologies are tricky because kids get, um, like forced into them so often, like whether that's at, you know, daycare or school or just, that's just a thing. And so the apology as, and that's for adults too. Like I, sometimes I think it loses some of its power as a symbol. Um, you know, sometimes they want to give each other a hug or something like that, but the additional kind of symbolic thing, um, that has popped up in our family is we have these ice packs, which are actually just little sewn pouches with rice that we keep in the freezer and they have like fun prints on them. They were made by a grandparent and um, they, it's just interesting. So often, even if they aren't really hurt, like they aren't like really experiencing physical pain, one will say like, I need an ice pack. And then the other one will run to the freezer and like get the ice pack and then like deliver it and help them hold it on. And it's like a, it's kind of more of a symbol than it is anything, you know, actually physically impacting, but it's a way of showing that they're like caring and trying to help the other person feel better. Um, and it's sweet. They like it. They, it feels like they're doing, they can really do something. Um, and so those get used all the time. They get integrated into like plans for repair between the two of them all the time. And um, it's just been kind of a fun, a fun and helpful, like a helpful tool, a helpful symbol in their ways of making things right with each other. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the other thing though that I'll just say before I pass it on is it has been a surprise to me how, um, how this is just an over and over again practice. Like we are doing this every day, if not multiple times a day, if not five times during the course of trying to cook dinner, like, um, and just that, I don't know if that's maybe just the particular age moment that I'm in, but it's, um, it really is a practice. Like, oh, they are really practicing this and um, we're doing the whole thing over again, again and again and again. Um, and just like sinking into that as a parent of like, okay, that's, that's okay. That doesn't mean that it's like not working or um, anything negative. It's just, it is a good and very like deeply respectful and human way to work through conflict. And so we're going to do it again. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'll pass to Christina. Yeah, I love what you said about forced apologies, Lindsay. I think that makes so much sense. Um, you know, of really creating space for that apology to come where it's actually meaningful, I think is something that I try to do. But um, coming back to your question, Joy, I feel like, you know, thinking about how our professional experience could inform how we manage uh, incidents between siblings is, is so interesting. Uh, I started practicing restorative justice work well before I had kids. And um, I feel like it's changed a lot and my perspective has changed a lot. 
in terms of how I look at things and how I study things. Like um, for the past 15 years, I've done classroom-based research. So I'm in classrooms uh, all the time, observing teachers and from K to 12, uh, kindergarten to grade 12, uh, in terms of you know, how they're managing conflicts and relationships. Um, and uh, sometimes, you know, I know I can walk into a classroom and you kind of know that they're practicing restorative justice and, it's, uh, and the school is, is a restorative culture. And, and then there are some moments when you think, oh, I'm not so sure. And you kind of sense that punitive um, environment. Uh, it might be rewards charts on the board um, that's really you know, facilitating extrinsic motivation um, or making it very competitive between students, or it might be uh, timeouts or detention or different methods. But um, I guess, you know, after becoming a parent, I've become much more sensitive to the kinds of methods that, that teachers are using and, and to how, and I, how I observe things. And, um, and, and sometimes it can be helpful and sometimes maybe it, you know, it doesn't, but I try to implement things that I have learned um, from uh, doing research with teachers and, and children. And uh, I think, you know, coming back to it, Justine, what you were saying um, with the restorative questions and, uh, you know, asking that question of what happened. And, uh, you know, I've seen um, a, a few teachers and, you know, in one case, there was a teacher who, who did use the questions uh, quite frequently, but she did it in that moment without taking that pause. Um, and it was like, you know, she kind of took out her question card when, a conflict would come up and would sometimes be like, okay, so what happened here? And like her tone would just be so dismissive and it would sometimes make um, uh, one of the other children who potentially was the, the perpetrator or maybe caused the harm um, feel very, feel a lot of shame. So I, I almost feel that, you know, the restorative questions are really wonderful and could be incredibly helpful for resolving conflict, but how can we actually also Think about integrating it in a way where we are creating that kind of self-care that you were talking about, um, Lindsay, where you are maybe, you know, preparing, whether it might not be 30 minutes that you have before handling it, but maybe taking that 30 seconds or something to, to really regroup and center so that you can um, ask those restorative questions in ways that, that can be helpful. But uh, I think, you know, with, with sibling conflict, at least with my kids, I, I can't always assume that they know what to do. And um, I guess, you know, where, where my kids are at with almost five and seven, I, I don't always feel like age is a proxy for knowing and that they still need guidance. And those moments of conflict are sometimes opportunities for that guidance. So, um, you know, yes, having the kinds of clear boundaries that restorative justice uh, would encourage us to, to do, but also allowing them to shift when necessary, uh, depending on the situation and context and where that child is at in the given moment. And so, you know, working along and within the restorative paradigm between authoritative and permissive and getting to a place that is just what that child needs is um, uh, so that we can really create the kind of compassionate human beings who know when they're, know how to be responsible for their actions when incidents do arrive and um, can do it in a constructive way. So yeah, thanks, Joy. That's so helpful, Christina. I think the parallels with the classroom are, are super helpful. I think I've noticed in myself that, you know, using the restorative questions, again, I, I found that something that's helpful with our children thinking about the restorative questions. It's easy if I'm, you know, cooking in the kitchen and I hear some screams or shouts in the room, sort of storm in and the kind of that question, what happened is not so much like a, 
a neutral question. It's more of a kind of an accusation of what happened. You know, it comes out in, in a very different uh, tone of voice, perhaps, than I would use in a, uh, a conversation that I was facilitating as a third party impartial facilitator. Um, so I think that's really helpful to be reminded of that. And also that, you know, this happens also in classrooms all the time. And I think something that I was I was thinking about as you were talking was that difficulty of sort of responding in the moment and having to deal with the conflict in the moment. You know, you're not coming to it later in the day, often you're not coming to it the next day or the next week to have this conversation. It's often like in the moment when it's happening, everything's going on, there's chaos at home. You know, like Justine and Lindsay were saying, it's hard when you don't have that time to prepare. But also that's the reality in classrooms as well. And so I think trying to maybe speak to more educators, teachers and be like, hey, what actually works for you? What works in the classroom might be a really helpful learning experience for me. Um, I think what I find difficult sometimes with using the restorative questions, because I also find that that helpful model for thinking um, through things and helping my children to approach the conflict resolution um, is just their own understanding at their young ages of like five and a half and three of like being able to really even articulate sometimes what they're feeling or, or why they lashed out they can't always or they don't really want to connect with that so I do find that challenging so Lindsay I think what you said about you know how does it feel in your body I think it's a really interesting question that I'd love to experiment with using um just to help them to I guess understand their own responses a little bit better um and I think I might come on to this a little in the next question as well but um I think that sort of shared solutions that you know what what do you need to feel better or how can we work together to find a resolution I think is something that I really try hard to incorporate um and really focus on you know if there's not a lot of time to kind of go through each of the questions really like you know um systematically and i might do in, in a conversation in a different context at least sort of focusing on that sort of shared solutions um i think is something that i'm really trying to encourage um but like everyone else has said sometimes you also need to have that pause you need to have a break they can't you can't jump straight in um so i guess moving on then to the, to the next question i was going to ask which um i think in some ways we've already covered a little bit so you know feel free to pass if you don't really feel you have anything more to share but you know what do you find works for your family when dealing with fighting or, or conflict between siblings are there any particular things that you have used that that seem to work or work some of the time <laughs> justine thank you um so first wanted to say we also have an ice pack uh situation in our house too so we have these little circular gel ice packs and we're using them multiple times a day as a way to show <laughs> our sorries to one another so it's fun to hear we also have these little like heat uh, they're like hot water bottles and you can fill them up with warm or hot water so sometimes they they do that for one another too and as this conversation has been going i i've realized that i think um you know it didn't take long after using the restorative questions that kind of like joy was saying I don't find myself asking them um, in the structured way all of the time anymore. What I notice is that 
um, there's very little like language around sorry that's being spoken in our house. And I think that's because I don't really give much weight to sorry. Like it's just not really a thing to say sorry. So I appreciated what we're talking about that that's not really even enough. So I see my kids just like kind of naturally jumping to action. Um, and that can look different depending on the situation, but sometimes it's a hug or sometimes it's, you know, um, going and getting something that it will make the other person feel better, like, or giving back the toy that they weren't sharing or whatever it is. So I appreciate that more action oriented piece of sorry. And I think that's what we're subconsciously working on. Um, and it seems to be working. So that's good. And then one other thing I just wanted to add on is on the Diego side of things. So I, I kind of mentioned how, you know, Indy takes on a lot of the responsibility, but now that he's coming towards to, um, you know, he, he's starting to understand more con complex concepts. So I make sure to have the same kinds of responsibility conversations with Diego that I do with Indy, but in front of Indy so that she can see him in his learning and that um, he's also responsible, but the conversations are more simple. So like in the midst of a fight, I try to help him identify his emotions instead of asking him because he just doesn't have the words yet for all of his emotions but uh if he's like flailing usually it's a physical thing so I'll start by like just gently holding his body and then say something like you know Diego I see you're having a hard time right now let's take a break and then once he's calm which usually doesn't take much but sometimes it does you know it just depends on the situation I say something like, you know, Indy wants to share how that felt, or if she's not in the place to do that, I'll, I'll explain like, ouchie, that hurt. Indy wants to play with you, but you're hurting her. Um, you need to use gentle hands. And I think at the beginning of my parenting journey, I used a lot of like we language and I wasn't quite as direct as I've become. So I'm working on being more direct because, you know, in restorative justice, yes, there's lots of support, but there's also high expectations. And I, I found that like the more direct I can be instead of being like, we as people need to not hit, it's like, you need to be more gentle right now. And that helps him, you know? It helps us all when, when people are direct. So it's just like bringing it to his level. And then um, if it continues, I'll encourage Indy and myself to walk away and do something else to show him that um, like the playing will stop when it's too rough or there isn't a good sharing happening. And the reason I'm doing that is because I've noticed that, you know, and we've probably all heard this, but I've seen it play out. The more um, like energy I give negative behavior, the more it continues. And, and so there's this balance with being restorative because in restorative, we're using a lot of words, which means we, we need to use a lot of energy. 
And the more words and energy I give something, the more he's like, oh, this is great. Like I have your attention, you know? So what I try and do is like use my words to um, support them in their positive behavior as much as possible. And then when challenging behavior is happening, like do a pause and then only give the negative behavior, like one or two sentence sentences worth of like, that was the impact ouchie we're going to move on and, and not play anymore if this continues so that he knows like attention will be taken away if negative behavior continues. And that seems to be helpful. So it's just kind of like the natural consequences of whatever is happening instead of like a, a punishment that's um, unconnected. I'll pass it over to Lindsay. Um. I've also been trying to shift away from the we language. It's interesting how um, I, that just kind of came out for me. And then um, I can't remember if we mentioned Janet Lansbury at all when we talked about resources in the last session, but she's a she has a podcast and has written a few books that I've found really helpful, was recommended um, by a friend who is a preschool teacher who uses restorative approaches in her classroom quite a bit. And so, yeah, just um, she talks about trying to be more direct with your language and not using the we, we don't hit each other sort of thing, um, but it's tricky. And yeah, definitely teachers have such, such great information and models to follow because of that similarity of just being constantly in community together. Um, so I appreciated you raising that, Christina. Um, Certainly have learned a lot from your work in that space too. Um, I uh, One other thing that was just coming up for me and thinking about this is um, I think, uh, you know, it's like very powerful questions, the restorative questions. That's part of what's really cool about them. Like that what happened question when you're really doing it in that compassionate curiosity tone, it's really powerful exploring impacts really powerful. And then that what's needed to repair harm or make things right, or however you phrase that last question, it's so powerful because it's so creative. Like there's, um, you know, really unlimited possibilities of what might make something right. Um, and that's been kind of fun to see because there's the go-tos of, you know, the ice packs or the hug or the favorite stuffed animal. Um, but then I was, um, Fern, my daughter did, um, she was excluding someone at the playground the other day. So I, we took some time, we talked about it. And then we were talking about, you know, what she might do to make things better. And what she came up with was, she said, oh, well, I could let her hold my baby. And all of a sudden she like had her arms out cradling, like she had a baby. And then she went over to this girl and was like, do you want to hold my baby? <laughs> and it totally worked. It was like, that was random and creative. I wouldn't have come up with that in a million years, but it was, you know, it was beautiful because the issue, like the harm was exclusion. And so she was, by letting this, you know, new friend that we met at the playground, asking if she wanted to play with her baby, she was initiating a game with her. She was repairing harm, um, but it's just kind of, it's random, you know, it's, um, and, but I love that about restorative justice. And I feel like you see that even in, the contracts that come out of criminal justice cases, they can be really creative and almost odd sometimes, but it's kind of, 
it's beautiful because there's a really, really large range of things that can repair harm um, and make things right. Um, and then the last thing I just want to mention real quick was recently I've had just a couple opportunities um, for like a role shift for my kids, which has been really cool, which is um, like if usually older one, Fern has a friend and I'm helping them to talk through a conflict that happened between her and a friend. Then Charlie, for example, gets a chance to be a facilitator with me. Um, and Ferns had probably less opportunities to fill that role, but a couple. And it's just cool because all of a sudden they get to see it from a different angle. Um, like uh, just the other day, um, Charlie was kind of helping me talk through this with Fern and another friend. And he has this really cute way of like, he really emphasizes question asking. Like he does like a very, like his tone shift at the end and he does this like very exaggerated head tilt. So he was like, how are you feeling? You know, and just like asking the question in this really exaggerated way um, with me and kind of echoing me. Um, and I don't know, I'm not really sure exactly how that will end up playing out, but it's just been fun to see. And it's an opportunity that doesn't come up when it's just the two of them. But if there's other kids in the mix, then they suddenly get to experience the whole process, the restorative questions and everything from a slightly different vantage point, which is cool. Pass to Christina. Thanks, Lindsay. I really love that idea of, you know, really paying attention to the wisdom of the child and letting them be part of the process, guiding the process. And I know we've done that, um, my partner and I, with when sometimes we have kids over or, or friends and, and their kids are over, if there's an opportunity to, um, you know, gather kids in a circle at times when a conflict arises, it's really incredibly um, powerful to let, to let the young people sometimes facilitate that amongst themselves. Because I really feel like for me, restorative justice, is, and like all of you, I think really would agree that it's about just relationships. And I think kids know that they can sense when there's inequity, they can sense when things aren't being fair. And, um, and I think, you know, creating opportunities for them to be uh, part of conversations where they, they know they can have a voice and there is equity um, could be really powerful. But I think, um, you know, when dealing with conflict uh, between um, our kids, I I feel like one of the most fundamental uh, things uh, is connection. And I feel like so much of sibling rivalry actually um, comes from kids needing that connection. And sometimes it's, uh, it's not necessarily connection with each other. Sometimes they need actually connection with a parent or a caregiver. And sometimes if they're feeling like, oh, one parent is um, more connected to another, the other, uh, the other child might sometimes erupt in conflict in different ways. So it feels like they might be asking for love or asking for attention through the conflicts at times. So paying attention to those moments and knowing, you know, that um, that child might be experiencing those really big feelings that seem painful, but it's actually because they need to feel more connected to us and um, as parents. And, and sometimes that also might be connection to their sibling as well. Um, just needing to know that that person loves them and is connected to them and having some validation of their, um, their own importance. Because I feel like you know, kids are, are absolutely aware of when we're showing, um, you know, potentially favoring one or the other. And uh, so I, I feel like when I see the kids, whether it's like hitting or yelling or, um, you know, some sort of conflict that does erupt, it's, it's hard for me to sometimes label one as victim or aggressor. And what I try to remember to see is that there are two kids 
or maybe multiple kids that are suffering and um, they're needing the guidance of an emotionally centered and, and grounded adult. And it, um, the more, more we as adults can really practice um, uh, being grounded and regulated, I think the better equipped our young people will be to do just that. So um, yeah, in these moments of, I guess we can call it dysregulation or disconnection, uh, when there's chaos or, or potentially harm that we're witnessing, um, we really do have the, the most profound opportunities to guide to guide them. Joy. Yeah, thank you. I don't think I have anything particularly to add that hasn't already been shared in some form um, today. And um, we're about to run out of time, so we don't have a lot of time for this last question into the shame, but I think I don't want to not cover it at all. Again, we have covered some of this already today. Um, but quickly before we wrap up today, how can we empower our children um, to develop their own conflict resolution skills rather than playing referee all the time? You know, I feel sometimes like, you know, I come in and I have to try to be the facilitator or be, you know, in more crude terms of the referee. Um, how can we be encouraging our children to start being able to do this for themselves? Um, Justine. Thank you. Yeah, so I loved what Christina said about um, children's sense of injustice, like they're just so uninhabited and like, like Indy is always letting me know when things are unfair and Diego feels it too. So I appreciate that because it allows a lot of space for them to engage themselves. So my first question always, like when things are erupting is, have you told the other person how you feel first? Because especially Indy's first response is always mom, like this is happening. Or, you know, her teachers tell me that she goes to them multiple times throughout the day to ask for help with things. And it's like, that's great, but you have the capacity to use your own voice and share how you're feeling. And so that, so I'm, I'm basically like not willing to step in until they've done their steps of communication first. And then if they still need further support, I'll jump in, but it's happening less often that I need to jump in because they kind of know the first line is going to be, have you already tried to work through this yourself and share with the other person? I love that. Um, I think uh, for me, I mean, uh, this emotional regulation piece is so key, right? That keeps coming up. And um, I feel like that's as far as I've gotten on this is sometimes I see Fern use the different emotional regulation tools and techniques that she has to center herself. And I get very excited and celebrate with her. <laughs> and I'm hoping that that will just keep leading to more ability to, you know, work through conflict um, without such a heavy facilitation role. But in the meantime, I, I try to just think of it as like, all right, we're, we're practicing, we're still practicing. Um, but I don't think we've reached that point yet in my house. Um, I'll pass to Christina. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, when I think about the question of, you know, kids handling them on their own, I feel like they already do so much of that handling. And when we're there, and we're able to help, I feel like, you know, we shouldn't necessarily lose those opportunities or um, shy away from getting involved. I feel like there are so many adults that uh, don't know how to ask for help and don't know um, where to go when conflict arises, you know, knowing how to 
appreciate the value of a mediator, a stabilizer, or a neutral third party is such a valuable skill. So it feels um, like as though we need to model those for our young people. And sometimes being that person that can be there to help them, um, you know, sharpen their independent resolution process, of course. And uh, but I also want them to work on skill building and better equipping themselves to to proactively deal with conflict. And um, I think that means ongoing opportunities for scaffolding when it arises, and then allowing them to uh, practice on their own when when those uh, possibilities arise. So I guess the end goal for me isn't that they're completely independent; that it is that they know how to practice opportunities for skill building, that they know when to reach out and how to reach out when they do need help, um, and that they, they we encourage them to actively seek out those opportunities as well. Sorry. Yeah, that's so that's so important and that's a good reminder. Thanks so much, Christina. Um, I think, as I said before, I think that uh, element of encouraging shared solutions and coming up with their own ideas is something that I'm really trying to encourage. I think everyone's had some good suggestions that today. And as Lindsay said, you know, often children can be so creative in the things they come up with. But I think in those moments when I am helping to scaffold and when I am helping to facilitate those discussions, I think I often, you know, suggest more solutions than I might do if I was working with an adult, you know, um, to help with that scaffolding and that learning process. But I'm really trying to, say you know what do you think might be a good solution or, or what do you think could be a good compromise or how how do we think how do you think we could make this a, a fair way, way of sharing or whatever um just to help particularly my older son who's five and a half to start to kind of think through okay well what would be a solution here that i could suggest um rather than just being told like this is how we're going to deal with it um to help him to start to think okay when an adult isn't there or even when an adult is there what could I suggest that might work for everybody involved um so really quickly again because we're going to run out of time um just a quick check out question just briefly I guess in a couple of sentences what are you going to take away from this discussion today Justine I think patience with myself just hearing from other other parents on the journey, you know, I, I find I'm being really hard on myself a lot of times like that. Um, my kids aren't being restorative or I'm not being restorative enough, but at the end of the day, like we're all trying. And I really appreciated the whole concept of just practice that even if we're doing the same thing five or 10 times within the hour, it's, it's helping them learn. And that's important. Lindsay. Mm -hmm. I'm taking away a lot from this one. Um, definitely the pause reminder and the just like, whew, you know, like, yeah, is it 30 seconds that you can give yourself and everyone else involved? Um, and, and uh, you know, this, this point that, Christina, you just made in the last round is sticking with me of, I think that's a, that's a frequent thing I see with adults of, feeling like they have to be all alone in resolving their conflict with other people. And like a facilitator actually would be really helpful right now. Um, and so just thinking of that, asking for my help as a skill that my kids are practicing and not, um, uh, you know, not that I'm, you know, failing to equip them. There's so many of those internal 
struggles, right? Of like, am I failing to do this is a kind of constant question. But um, anyways, I just appreciated that reframe of like, that is a skill asking for and knowing how powerful that or how helpful that role of a third party, a facilitator can be um, is also an important thing. So pass to Christina. Thanks, Lindsay. Yeah, I feel like I'm taking away um, the beauty of ice packs and hot water bottles. I think that was so wonderful. Um, I think and the fancy ice packs that you both spoke about, I think that's a great strategy. So yeah, I feel like this is a learning journey all the time. And, um, you know, uh, I think that knowing that uh, experiential guidance is incredibly transformative and um, the kind of decisions that we make all the time uh, will always and could potentially uh, contribute to creating engaged, peaceful and thoughtful citizens and um, that can contribute to being kind and inclusive. So, uh, you know, to using those moments as, as much as we can are um, to everyone's benefit in the world. Joy. I find myself thinking that I would really love to delve more into uh, I guess what educators are, are saying, you know, particularly those who work with really young age groups. Um, into those early years of school um i think there's just a lot of learning and wisdom that we can can learn from really experienced and, and talented educators who have really effectively just really embedded restorative justice restorative approaches in in the classroom so i think that's making me think i want to do a little bit more of my own research and reading and, and learning um, from them well this has been an amazing uh, discussion i'm sure we could have gone on for a lot longer um, I'm yeah it's just such a, a fascinating topic to just bounce ideas around and, and really just learn what works with other people um, so thank you to everyone who's listening for joining us today and thank you again to our guests for joining us I just always so encouraged by the different perspectives that you'll bring and the, the suggestions and wisdom um, and yeah, so if you would like to find out more about uh, Mint House, um, you can go to our website, which is minthouseoxford.co.uk. Um, you can also find us on social media, um, on Twitter and Instagram, we're at, at minthouserp. Um, we're also on LinkedIn and Facebook. Um, so join us there. I would love to hear what other people think about this topic. So feel free to contact us through one of those means. Um, and yeah, tell us what you think, what works for you, what questions are you pondering um we have one more episode left for this uh series and that will be on building our own capacity for restorative responses so as we touched on today you know it's difficult when we ourselves are not regulated when we're not in a place where we can really effectively bring our best selves um to our families that makes things more challenging um so just trying to think through what are some ways that we can actually help ourselves to do that uh, more effectively. So hope that you will all join us next time for that. And thank you for listening and we will speak to you soon.